Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. In the 23rd iteration of the EU-China summit, President of the European Council Charles Michel and President of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen, accompanied by High Representative Joseph Borrell, met Chinese Prime Minister Li Keqiang in the morning and Chinese President Xi Jinping in the afternoon. On its website, the EU Council states, the EU and Chinese leaders discussed the state of bilateral relations and areas of shared interests such as climate change, biodiversity and health, as well as ways to ensure a more balanced and reciprocal trade relationship. The main issue was, however, Russia's military aggression against Ukraine, which both sides discussed extensively, as it says. My name is Johannes Heller-Jon, and in this podcast we will discuss the build-up and outcomes of the summit, compared to previous EU-China summits, and the trajectory of EU-China relations. To this end, I'm joined by a guest who frequent listeners to the America's China podcast will need no introduction to. I'm joined by Gregor Stetz, analyst at Merics, an expert on EU-China relations and founder of the EU-China Hub. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Hello, Johannes. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. As mentioned in the introduction, April 1st saw the 23rd EU-China summit. Before looking at the summit in more detail, let us take a step back and look at the build-up and expectations for EU-China summit. What set the scene for this year's summit, Greg? Well, let me tackle this question with two perspectives, one more long-term one and one more short-term one. So the 23rd summit has been a long time coming uh, and from the beginning was not up to a good start um, and was bound to be much more political than usual. We have to keep in mind that in 2021, we didn't actually have an EU-China summit due to political tensions, including the exchange of sanctions between the EU and China that later led to a freeze of comprehensive agreement on investments ratification and also later on Chinese economic coercion towards Lithuania. So all of those issues um, didn't really um, create good atmosphere for arranging the EU-China summit and it kept being pushed back. Initially it was supposed to take place by the end of 2021, then the beginning of the year, then we we're hearing about March and then in the end we got the date on the April's Fools, uh, so the 1st of April 2022. But in the meantime, of course, we got the Russian invasion of Ukraine and this is the topic that dominated the summit, as you mentioned in the introduction. So China was very reluctant to make Ukraine the key topic of the summit. Uh, and that was very clear as the European side has been pushing to bring this issue on the agenda, uh, initially also trying to encourage China to play a mediator's role in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But if we take a look back at summits in 2015 and 2019, Discussing Ukraine and the situation between Ukraine and Russia is not really a new thing during EU-China summits. In those two years, 2015 and 2019, uh, we had joint statements in which both the EU and China supported, for example, Minsk agreements. So all of that shows us the, the political and rather tense buildup to the summit in the more long term. But looking at it more short term, over the course of the week preceding the summit. We got on the European side the NATO, G7 and European Council summits that all took place in Brussels, also with the visit of President Biden to the European Union. And over those statements, uh, including the joint statement by NATO the, that uh, 
clearly called on China not to circumvent the sanctions, not to support Russia amid its invasion of Ukraine, and also the G7 statement on and the cooperation on tightening the sanctions, or rather controlling how effective they are and that there are no loopholes. So amid all that, the EU position uh, and the EU's goal for the summit was set quite clearly on the point of Ukraine. So to try to affect Beijing's strategic calculus on supporting Russia. If we take a look at the other side, we had a meeting just three days before the EU-China summit between the state, state councillor and Minister of Foreign Affairs Wang Yi with Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs Sergei Lavrov in Anhui. And during that meeting, the two sides basically reiterated the points that we all know from the February 4 joint statement. So basically that the partnership between China and Russia has no limits. So the kind of a buildup and the mindset with which Beijing was most likely coming to this summit was to protect its stance uh, on supporting Russia, but to limit the costs at the same time. And also to try to limit the momentum that we've been seeing in the transatlantic relations that could turn on China over the issue of uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and China's support. Let's here remember that uh, already a year ago, NATO summit labeled China as a challenge. So there is a clear link that Beijing might be making between this conflict and also its own interests, not only beyond the statements uh, that we've been hearing before, but also seeing NATO as a potential troublesome actor looking from the side of Beijing. So to sum it up, this summit was bound to be more political than usual from the onset and to be dominated by the Russian invasion. And it was hard to expect very constructive outcomes, quite frankly, but rather that both sides would uh, clarify to each other where they stand through direct communication of leaders. What are then the practical and political outcomes of the summit? Well, when it comes to the practical outcomes, there were, quite frankly, very scarce. Uh, there was no joint statement, uh, but the two sides did agree that the high-level dialogue, so those are the formats that you unite European commissioners with Chinese ministers or other appropriate counterparts, that those dialogues would continue as scheduled. And quite notably, and this is a clear deliverable from the summit, is that the Chinese side agreed to restart the human rights dialogue that has been dormant for some time. Um, also, the, both the EU and China tasked the high-level trade and economic dialogue to tackle the market access issues, but not much more, to be honest, than that. So this was not really the key story of the summit. As we said before, the summit was much more political, and it was important in terms of drawing lines in the sand between EU and China, especially on the point of, um, of, of Russian invasion of Ukraine. So if you look at the readouts, we could say that the EU side played in the offense, trying to put up political pressure, and the Chinese side was playing in the defense, trying to deflect this pressure. The European leaders even referred to it as a quote-unquote wartime summit, and emphasized several times that it was not business as usual. And here the key message that the European side was trying to drive home uh, was a veiled warning to Beijing. Uh, in the words of President von der Leyen, China should 
if not support, at least not interfere with our sanctions. And this message landed quite clearly as the European uh, leaders pointed to China's daily trade with the EU being around six times the value of China's exchange with Russia. They also connected that with the COVID-induced disruptions in the Chinese economy, uh, so around 30 percent of GDP and around 35 percent of China's population being under lockdowns currently. And all this was paired with a message, take a look at what is happening with Russian reputational damage and how it translated to businesses trying to limit their costs uh, or trying to, to act on this reputational damage. And that this could potentially be also extend to China as if it supports Russia in practical terms, could suffer to a certain extent similar political or rather uh, could suffer similar economic costs. But it was not just about Ukraine, uh, it was also about bilateral issues. So here we saw the European side mentioning clearly the China's sanctions towards uh, Lithuania, the whole question of economic coercion, the sanctions against MEPs and other European actors, also the issue of human and labor rights, uh, especially linked to Xinjiang, and the question of market, market reciprocity. But still, uh, the message on potential cooperation was also there, uh, emphasizing as always the climate goals and also the global health matters. And on this, the EU side also um, mentioned that it could support uh, China with effective, as uh, President von der Leyen emphasized, effective mRNA vaccines, uh, which is something that could really come in handy uh, given the situation in China right now. Now, if we take a look at the Chinese readouts, China rather tried to wish the issues away and try to compartmentalize it, uh, rather trying to say, let's not allow the Ukraine and uh, Russian invasion issue to spill over, which is quite frankly, a little bit ironic looking back at how at the beginning of 2020, it was the European side that was trying to compartmentalize political issues from economic ones. Now it was China trying to do the same and not really managing to, to achieve that. And one line to my mind from this readout that was quite remarkable was the fact that China's vision of the relationship remains unchanged compared to what President Xi Jinping proposed eight years ago. Uh, so in other words, China is really struggling to, to, to find an effective response to everything that is happening in EU-China relations in terms of keeping the engagement going. In line with this, the Chinese side presented the EU-China relations as a stabilizing factor in the world. Um, on Ukraine, unfortunately, the Chinese side decided not to make any new commitments, uh, any new statements. Basically, the points that we got uh, are the repetition of the points that were exchanged between Jake Sullivan and Yang Jiechi in Rome, and also during the call between President Xi Jinping and President Biden. So not really much that was achieved during the summit in terms of Chinese position. Uh, the Chinese readout um, also tried to present the summit was more positive than it really was, and also to encourage the EU to develop its own understanding of China, uh, rather than trying to uh, play on uh, on the whole question of strategic autonomy and trying to limit the cooperation or seeing eye to eye between Brussels and Washington. Importantly, uh, we also got the whole question of the 
new strategic or rather new security architecture in Europe that Beijing is supporting. It's supposed to be, according to Beijing, a balanced, effective and sustainable European security framework. And this is notable because it's basically about Beijing calling on us to accommodate some of the Russian interests amid this conflict. So to wrap it up and and to try to evaluate how effective all of that is well what are the real outcomes here uh, well we got a message from uh, high representative joseph borrell saying that it was basically a dialogue of the death uh, where the two sides are not really listening to one another and just laying out their points and i think no one expected China to change its course towards Russia as an effect of the summit, but the European side definitely did the best what, that it could uh, to try to influence Beijing's strategic calculus on its relationship with Moscow, everything falling short of uh, concrete action already at this stage. Still, while the EU did talk to talk uh, and drew a very clear line on supporting Moscow for Beijing, it will be important to see whether it's really going to walk the walk, because we have to remember that Brussels has been doing commendable work on developing policy tools for responding to some of the challenges that are posed by China. And here, those are very often policy tools that deal with much more long-term issues. But here, the tricky bit is going to be about potentially responding politically and quite rapidly, should Beijing really extend its practical support to Moscow. So it is important that the EU really is ready to walk the walk. Uh, but I do think we will see that if Beijing crosses the red line. We'll return to the trajectory of EU-China relations uh, later on in the podcast. Um, but I wanted to take a little detour. Um, as you mentioned, the Chinese readout of the summit, um, there was a bit of oddity about the publishing timing of this paper. And maybe we could delve into the Chinese communication strategies around the summit. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, this was a very interesting point because it also shows us uh, quite clearly how China was playing in the defense during this summit, trying to limit and mitigate the costs of its stance on Russia, trying to control the narrative surrounding this, uh, surrounding this summit. And uh, I say that because just three days before the summit, uh, we got uh, Wang Lutong, so the Director General for European Affairs at the Chinese MFA, joining Twitter suddenly uh, to communicate also directly during the summit. And uh, to a certain extent, he was one of the first points of uh, information for a number of media. So that was one of those approaches. But another one that we noted was the fact that the readout of President Xi Jinping's points in his conversation with the European leaders appeared uh, just 15 minutes into a one hour long call. So quite clearly, Beijing was not really interested in uh, listening to the other side, but rather interested in putting out its own statement, which again points at this um, approach of trying to control the narrative surrounding the summit uh, and the problematic situation in which China was going into this summit from the onset. Did we see in the media whether Chinese points were more taken up than expected or did the EU narrative uh, lend its points in at least in European media? 
I think the European points definitely did land clearly in the end of the day. But at the same time, it's notable that we we got these approaches and those attempts by the by the Chinese side. And this really points to the fact that we have to be mindful of the Chinese communication strategies amid those events, trying to shape this narrative and, for example, present the summit as more positive than it really was. Um, so, for example, Chinese party state media were very quick to replicate the narratives coming from the from the Chinese side already during during the summit, which was not uh, as much of a case with the European media. So you could see that there was a certain coordination on that side. And I would rather say that this is just something that points to the fact how much Beijing recognizes the political sensitivity of the position that it is in right now. You mentioned uh, past China summits before, and you're currently analyzing summits uh, under the current administration in comparison with previous EU administrations. Could you share some insights uh, on what you have found in, in your comparisons? Sure. I mean, I'll leave some of the details for the analysis itself, if you allow, but um, let me let me go into this. So it's good, of course, to go back to those past summits as there are kind of snapshots of where the EU-China relations were in the past, and they help us to see the trajectory more clearly. So if we take a look at the deliverables of the summits uh, in the past under the Tusk-Juncker duo or between uh, or during the Michel von der Leyen duos, uh, which were, of course, all the summits that were attended by Premier Li Keqiang and also including meetings with President Xi Jinping. So on the Chinese side, we didn't really have uh, any change of the participants. So um, we we could see that the space for cooperation has been shrinking. Quite frankly, there are less deliverables coming over time from those summits. And that points to a few reasons. We have, first of all, the, the question of promise fatigue. So a number of points that were agreed before were not really delivered upon quite often by the Chinese side. Not all of them, of course, but that was part of the problem on the on the European side. Now, also, the increasing divergence of interests uh, is notable. For example, it's hard for us to agree on the science and technology exchanges and science and technology cooperations amid the concerns about the standardization competition um, and generally speaking, the whole question of digital transition and competition of our companies in that sense, in that um, in that space, especially given concerns over uh, IP protection, as China is becoming increasingly an economic competitor to Europe. Um, but apart from that, we also see wider political tensions and systemic rivalry uh, that leads to greater mistrust in the relationships and is increasingly getting in the way of making the summits actually focused on cooperation. So given all of that, we can quite understand how it ended up that during the time of uh, President von der Leyen and President Michel's time, we didn't really have a single joint summit. I mean, both of those summits ended up without a joint statement being released by the EU and Chinese side. And also, we have to keep in mind that this is during during that time that those exchanges turned virtual. So the communication is naturally just much harder. Uh, and looking at the COVID situation in China right now, it just may be hard for that to change in the foreseeable future. So the channels of communications and also the political landscape just looks much more challenging. 
And let's keep in mind that the EU-China relations, to a certain extent, there was a framework that was guiding the relationship until 2020, and that was the EU-China Strategic Agenda for Cooperation 2020, uh, a document that was put together in 2013 during the first meeting between EU leaders uh, and the fifth generation of Chinese leaders, so President Xi Jinping and, President, uh, and uh, Premier Li Keqiang. And uh, since then, after the agenda really ended up in 2020, we didn't really get the new agenda, uh, the new strategic agenda for cooperation 2025, which was discussed before, but was initially delayed given the push from the European side to first deal with the negotiations of the, on the comprehensive agreement on investment. And afterwards, we ended up with sanctions and everything else that delayed the, uh, the discussion about the 2025 agenda. And this is basically how we get here without this guiding overarching um, agenda for cooperation. And it's quite hard to imagine how would we get to it in the current political circumstances. Now, uh, all of that, of course, doesn't mean that we are in a position where there is no room for cooperation or that we're bound to take uh, somewhat deterministic approach that we're locked in for confrontation or, or anything of this sort. But we should be very mindful on both sides that systemic rivalry is increasingly the key element of the relationship, or rather it's the element that definitely uh, gains most attention over time. Uh, it's, it's quite on the rise. So frankly, should China extend a practical support to Russia, this could very well be this moment where the relationship really gets redefined because we've had this trajectory for a more problematic relationship over those last years and now could be simply uh, a tipping point should this practical support be extended to Russia. An agenda that the EU has been working on very diligently and is uh, in the process of implementing is its uh, geopolitical outlook. Uh, the EU has recently presented its Global Gateway Initiative as well as its strategic compass, which is an analysis of the EU's strategic environment and a guide to action with regards to EU's security and defense efforts. The letter passed only days ahead of the EU-China summit by the Council of the European Union. How does this new geopolitical outlook of the EU impact EU-China relations? So there are different narratives and different interpretations of how to look at the EU becoming more geopolitical. On one hand, we have this long-standing narrative in China that the EU is a weak actor, pointing at Brexit, pointing at refugee crisis, pointing at the, uh, the economic challenges, the initial deal dealing with uh, COVID, which right now is not really a point that I think Beijing will be bringing back up. Um, but all of that points to the EU, generally speaking, being seen as a weak actor. On the other hand, we have all those moves that are seen by Beijing as the EU building its geopolitical capacity. So the EU is becoming a more relevant partner and actor to which Beijing has to pay more attention. But this is not really a clean cut. It's a, it's a bit of a divergence um, within that. At the same time, we also have a question of how to interpret those last weeks uh, looking from Chinese perspective, and there was quite some interest by Chinese analysts, whether this is a moment where the EU is becoming indeed a much more geopolitical actor. It's actually exercising also its greater strategic autonomy in the sense of 
being uh, building up its geopolitical capacity, or is it rather a situation in which it's falling back into the transatlantic relationship and as Beijing would see it uh, becoming more and more dependent on uh, Washington and abandoning the quest of the strategic autonomy? And that is one of the key questions for Beijing amid all, all those uh, geopoliticization, if you will, to use such a terrible buzzword um, uh, of the European Union. This is a key question for Beijing. How much uh, serious and how does the EU really understand the strategic autonomy as such? Because from Beijing's perspective, this could potentially be the avenue through which it may try to drive a wedge between, uh, between Brussels and European capitals and Washington. And this is something that Beijing very much hopes for, not really for EU to side with it amid its strategic competition with the US, but definitely for the EU to take a neutral stance, if possible. Now, all the situation um, related to Russian invasion, that of course puts that on the spot and in the focus. So it's definitely a moment in which Beijing is trying to uh, interpret the situation and uh, quite possibly we're going to see looking at the readouts from the from the EU China it's very much that Beijing is afraid that the transatlantic relationship is indeed getting much closer um, so that will definitely have an impact on EU China relations in the in the long term if I may put in uh, a question on the strategic autonomy still um, you just elaborated on how, how China sees strategic autonomy, um, trying to use it as a as a label, or it's used as a label for like um, Europe should be more independent from the US, um, maybe align more with China as well. Um, it is also frequently brought up in the strategic compass, which is authored uh, by the European Union. So, so what does the EU mean when they use the term strategic autonomy? Well, that's a million euros question, quite quite frankly, uh, because from the onset, this concept has been a bit problematic and there has been a little bit of back and forth about what it actually entails and means. Uh, to a certain extent, the uh, concept of strategic autonomy politically has been driven by the administration of uh, President Emmanuel Macron uh, and generally speaking, ambition for the EU to become again a more capable geopolitical power in the sense there would be this uh, slight, um, not anti-American, but let's say US skeptic edge uh, to, to this concept then. On the other hand, however, it's not really so if we take a look, for example, within the strategic compass. The European quest for strategic autonomy and building up the geopolitical capacity is presented out there very much more as a complementary part of transatlantic relationship and for example the europe potential european military buildup buildup of uh, the spending on the military equipment is seen as definitely a step in line with uh, retaining nato as definitely the key framework for common security architecture so this is one of the of those uh, important points also of debate within the eu what is actually meant by strategic autonomy with some of the countries being more uh, inclined to dismiss it over the concerns of what impact it might have on the transatlantic relationship but 
whole other part was also how this concept of open strategic autonomy was being developed during the corona uh, corona pandemic in the 2020 uh, when there was this initial recognition of the strategic vulnerabilities of some of our supply chains so there that was a more trade focused aspect of it one that would be much more focused on addressing our vulnerabilities uh, much more defensive focused uh, aspect of the of this concept so in a way, strategic autonomy remains this buzzword that keeps being filled with different meanings depending on the actors, but it's quite frankly not really, in my mind at least, something that would be uncomplimentary with the EU-US relations. It's quite strongly something that can be pursued in tandem and reinforcing one another, as was put in the strategic compass as well. Going back to um, the beginning and in, in the EU-China relations that we talked about and as a final question also what is the trajectory of the eu-china relations in the coming months so the eu-china relations are indeed in a very problematic point um, it's hard for us with all the obstacles that we see now in the eu-china relations to think about the very constructive forward-looking common agenda it's very much about mitigating the issues uh, as they come but the problems that stay with us, there, there are real obstacles to developing a greater common uh, common position uh, or common, common agenda. So those obstacles, of course, being the sanctions towards Lithuania, which are now being discussed within the WTO consultation mechanism uh, and with the EU working on the anti-coercion instrument, they just remain unaddressed. Uh, and we have seen them uh, working quite uh, strongly through the first two months of 2020 when the Lithuanian exports to China were slashed by 90%, uh, close to 90% compared to the previous year. And of course, the, it's the secondary sanctions here that remain this problem, the challenge to the European single market. Another issue that remains is the sanctions against MEPs and other European actors. And here, uh, Wang Lutong, to, to whom we alluded already before in our conversation, after the summit said that the Chinese side would be open to lifting the sanctions should the European side lift their sanctions first. And that is, of course, not something that we can expect to see in the coming months. Uh, similarly, on the human and labor rights issue, uh, the anti-forced labor mechanism is in the pipeline. Uh, it's supposed to be unveiled probably even this autumn. So that would be definitely another point where um, there would be tensions in the, in the relationship. But quite uh, the, the biggest issue that is ahead of us, of course, is how to navigate the Russian invasion of Ukraine and China's position there. This is definitely the key issue that is going to be a very important factor in how the EU-China relations are going to proceed over the coming months. Um, and in a way, we find ourselves in this situation where both sides are increasingly, because this has been a standing point, in talking about EU-China relations when China was frequently repeating that the European side and the Chinese side don't really have a, a fundamental conflict of interests. Now with the European side being increasingly active in the Indo-Pacific and wanting to expand activity in the Indo-Pacific that China sees as a, as a 
definitely a theater of interest for itself. And with China also making statements about European security architecture, it's clearly that we're entering this new stage where both sides might have increasingly more those uh, points of divergence also on those strategic issues. So this all leads us to a question that we will be grappling with over those next months whether the formula for EU-China relations that we had over, over those last years, especially since 2019 with the multifaceted approach, whether it is sustainable and whether also China can really repeat, as it has during the summit, uh, the statements that, uh, that its vision for the EU-China relations remains unchanged. It does seem that we're in a position where Beijing is trying to eat a cookie of supporting Russia and changing the international rules-based order, while at the same time to have the cookie of not facing any repercussions in its relationship with the EU. And it is trying to, to a certain extent, charm the reality by trying to uh, not to discuss those issues as, for example, was the, was the case during this summit or try to, um, try to paint a much more positive picture of EU-China relations than the reality is. On the European side, I think that, to my mind, we shouldn't necessarily be think thinking of a new framework to substitute this multifaceted approach of uh, cooperation partner, economic competitor, systemic rival. It's not about a new framework or a new buzzword, but rather within this multifaceted approach, we really need to have a very in-depth discussion about our priorities and about our goals that we want to achieve in the EU-China relations. Because one of the long-standing goals uh, has been about opening the Chinese market um, more to, to encouraging Beijing to, uh, to be more open towards European companies. Now, in a situation where we are also discussing the whole question of diversifying away from China, of uh, the questions of economic coercion and so on, we have to be mindful how, how our priorities might have been shifting as well and to develop a clearer goals on our side as well. So when it comes to the outlook for the next months, for the foreseeable future, it's really a situation in which it seems neither of the sides has a realistic and clear, but first of all, realistic idea that can be accepted for both sides for how the relationship can go forward in a constructive tone. So we'll see if this divergence of interest and divergence of strategic priorities and where it's going to lead us, but quite frankly, it just doesn't look particularly positive. Thank you for your time and insights, Greg. Thank you very much. And to all our listeners, if you want to find out more about Greg's work and his publications, you can find them on our website. Thank you all for listening. Have a good day still and hear you next time. Goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.